185, page 185, my Savior's love. Page 185, my Savior's love. All right, page 185, here we go. I stand amazed in the presence of Love for 
what a picture-perfect Easter Sunday morning. I mean, the sunshine, the temperature, the weather. I'll tell you what, um, our azaleas are blooming this year like we have never, ever seen before. As we pulled into the church parking lot, just uh, one of the houses across the street, I've never seen the tree blossom uh, like it is this time of year. Just a beautiful uh, Easter Sunday morning. It's good to be in church here today. Uh, this hymn that we're singing is written by a man named Charles Gabriel. He was contemporary of Fanny Crosby and uh, and probably uh, only second to Fanny Crosby in not only the amount of hymns that he wrote, but the quality of the hymns that he wrote. And he wrote this hymn back in 1905. He grew up as a farmer and he was a great uh, songwriter and composer. And uh, this song especially, talking about our Savior's love, what better thing could we sing about here on Resurrection Sunday? And so let's continue on my Savior's love on the second verse. to the front, page number 15, lead me to Calvary, page number 15, 15, lead me to Calvary. King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. Forget thy thorn crown brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Show me the tomb where thou hast laid Robes of light arrayed, guarded thee while thou slept. 
You may be seated. I'd like to welcome some very special guests with us here today. We have um, Brother Terry Tevipa and Sister Carol's family. We've got the Hoffmans all the way from South Africa. We've got the Pattons from West Virginia. And then uh, also um, we've got... Uh... Brother Terry, why don't you just stand up, introduce everyone. I know that... Uh, We've got some new folks around here, and so um, uh, if you would introduce everyone so that the folks that don't know your family, that uh, they can uh, get acquainted with them. Okay. And then Carol, my wife, and me, and then I have two of the Ortiz family with us today, two of my granddaughters, and uh, if, you'll, if you'll stand. All right, excellent. Eliana, Mario, you may be seated. And then my mother, who caused all this problem. I, I, was, I was wondering who that was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amen. What a joy to have all of y'all, and uh, 
You know, I, I apologize, Weston. I was just drawing a blank when I was trying to re- remember. It was just not coming to me when I was on the spot. Of course, Weston and Megan. And y'all still live in Yadkinville? Hamptonville, all right, from the, the uh, Independent Republic of Hamptonville. <laughs> so, uh, Brother Terry's family from all over the world. But it is a joy to have everyone here this Easter Sunday, and folks that we haven't seen for a while uh, just cannot begin to tell you uh, what a joy it is to see you here this morning. And uh, we're looking forward to a good time uh, by way of announcements. First of all, After the service this morning, we've got in the chapel, that's directly across from uh, the foyer, we've got a photo booth set up, and so uh, got a nice Easter backdrop, and so you can uh, go in at your leisure, uh, first come, first serve, take some family portraits and so forth, and uh, that's set up, and then uh, we will not be having a service this evening. Uh, We hope that all of you are able to enjoy time with your family And um, we don't always do that on Easter, but uh, felt like that it would be a good thing uh, here today. Uh, Don't forget that Missions Conference starts this coming Wednesday. Services will be Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 7 p.m. And then on Saturday, we're going to have a fellowship here at the church in our fellowship hall. And the meal will be at 5.30. And here's what we're asking you ladies to do Uh, for the fellowship. Uh, First of all, the church will be providing the meat and the rolls and the beverages. If you are attending, please sign up and bring either a coleslaw or baked beans, and the sign-up sheet is in the foyer, or you can sign up on our Realm app, um, same way that we do our online giving. If you have any questions about that, see Sister Christina Lemons, and if she doesn't know the answer, then there is no answer. Because she knows everything, and so I appreciate uh, all the work that uh, goes into these events. And our missionaries for this year are Brother and Sister Jeff Williams, uh, Brother and Sister Clint Burden, uh, Mike and Don Beldheis, uh, Brother Christopher Thompson, and then um, hopefully uh, Brother Warren Hoffman. If not, uh, Sister Lori and the family will be here And so if you would, please pray that uh, Brother Warren will get the approval that he needs from um, the uh, government there, his visa, in order to come and be part of the conference, uh, still waiting. And if he gets word from them in the next day or two, he'll be on a plane and hopefully make it for all or part of the conference. And then, let's see, let me make sure uh, we are still having our men's prayer meeting next Saturday at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, we will not be having our street ministry, and um, I think that's got all of our bases covered by way of announcements, and so let's go ahead and stand and sing another hymn, uh, The Way of the Cross Leads Home, hymn number four in your hymnal. All right, page number four, page number four, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. Let's go on. 
my Lord says, Come and I seek my home where the waits at the open. clapping for the resurrection. Amen. That's worth clapping about. Amen. Let's give it another round of applause. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for the resurrection. I do. Uh, I like to, I don't always, sometimes I, I, I'm not nitpicky about it, but I do like calling today resurrection Sunday 
because like everything, we get uh, religious and we get traditional and sometimes we uh, forget the meaning of things that ought to have the most meaning. If you would, take your Bibles and go to the book of John, chapter number 20. John, chapter number 20. While you're turning, I have a story that I came across. Uh, This is a true story. And I want to read it to you. It's uh, several pages long here, but it should only take a few minutes to read this story, because uh, not only is this story relevant to Easter today, but it's also relevant to our missions conference that is just a few days away. This is written by a man named Eddie Ogan. He said, I'll never forget Easter of 1946. I was 14, my little sister Osi was 12, and my older sister Darlene was 16. We lived at home with our mother, and the four of us knew what it was to do without many things. My dad had died five years before, leaving mom with seven school kids to raise and no money. By 1946, my older sisters were married, and my brothers had left home. A month before Easter, the pastor of our church announced that a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and to give sacrificially. When we got home, we talked about what we could do. We decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to, allow us to save $20 of our grocery money for the offering. When we, thought that, uh, when we thought that if we kept our electric lights turned out as much as possible and didn't listen to the radio, we'd save money on that month's electric bill. Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysat for everyone we could. For 15 cents, we could buy enough cotton loops to make three potholders to sell for a buck. We made $20 on potholders. That month was one of the best months of our lives. Every day, we counted the money to see how much we had saved. At night, we'd sit in the dark and talk about how the poor family was going to enjoy having the money the church would give them. We had about 80 people in the church, so figured that whatever amount of money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times that much. After all, every Sunday, the pastor had reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, Osi and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all our change. We ran all the way home to show Mom and Darlene. We had never had so much money before. That night, we were so excited we could hardly sleep. We didn't care that we wouldn't have new clothes for Easter. We had $70 for the sacrificial offering. We could hardly wait to get to church. On Sunday morning, rain was pouring. We didn't own an umbrella, and the church was over a mile from our home. But it didn't seem to matter how wet we got. Darlene had cardboard in her shoes to fill the holes. The cardboard came apart and her feet got wet. But we sat in church proudly. I heard some teenagers talking about the Smith girls having on their old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes and I felt rich. When the sacrificial offering was taken, we were sitting on the second row from the front. Mom put in the $10 bill and each of us kids put in a 20 As we walked home after church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise for us. She had bought a dozen eggs, and we had boiled Easter eggs with our fried potatoes. Later that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. 
Mom went to the door, talked with him for a moment, and then came back with an envelope in her hand. We asked what it was, but she didn't say a word. She opened the envelope and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, and 17 $1 bills. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, just sat and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. We kids had such a happy life that we felt sorry for anyone who didn't have our mom and dad for parents and a house full of brothers and sisters and other kids visiting constantly. We thought it was fun to share silverware and see whether we got the spoon or the fork that night. We had two knives that we passed around to whoever needed them. I knew we didn't have a lot of things that other people had, but I'd never thought we were poor. That Easter day, I found out we were. The minister had brought us the money for the poor family, so we must be poor. I didn't like being poor. I looked at my dress and worn out shoes and felt so ashamed, I didn't even want to go back to church. Everyone there probably already knew we were poor. I thought about school. I was in the ninth grade and at the top of my class of over 100 students. I wondered if the kids at school knew that we were poor. I decided that I could quit school since I had finished the eighth grade. That was all the law required at that time. We sat in silence for a long time. Then it got dark and we went to bed. All that week, we girls went to school and came home and no one talked much. Finally, on Saturday, mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What did poor people do with money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. We didn't want to go to church on Sunday, but mom said we had to. Although it was a sunny day, we didn't talk on the way. Mom started to sing, but no one joined in, and she only sang one verse. At church, we had a missionary speaker. He talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would put a roof on a church. The minister said, can't we all sacrifice to help these poor people? We looked at each other and smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me and I handed it to Osi. Osi put it in the offering. When the offering was counted, the minister announced that it was a little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from our small church. He said, you must have some rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given $87 of that little over $100. We were the rich family in the church. Hadn't the missionary said so? From that day on, I've never been poor again. I've always remembered how rich I am because I have Jesus Christ. I have nothing to add to that story. I think it speaks for itself. John chapter number 20 and verse number 24. Our text goes from verse 24 down to verse number 31. Would you please stand with me here this morning as we read the text from which we will preach this message. John chapter 20 and verse number 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. 
The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. My message this morning has a very old school title. I'm not sure whether I'm an old school preacher, but I certainly would like to be considered an old school preacher. I'm not too fond of the new school preaching that we see in our country today. But my title is an old school title because it's very descriptive. It's not clever. It's not catchy. But it basically just says what this message is all about. And that is the events surrounding the crucifixion and their significant meaning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good to be in church today, and I thank you, Lord, for this great congregation. Lord, for everyone that's listening here present, as well as those that are watching through technology, we ask a special blessing upon every hearer. We pray, Father, as we focus on the cross of Calvary, that you would enable us to speak clearly and concisely, and above all, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we realize that the truths that we'll be talking about today are not just informational, but they are spiritual. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to convince us and cause us to see our need. And Lord, uh, uh, and to show us that the solution to our need is Jesus Christ. And so please bless us and anoint us today for your glory and honor and for the good of all the hearers. And we do pray that you'd get glory and honor because you certainly are worthy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we read John's words about these things that are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name, I'm reminded that everything recorded about Jesus Christ has significant meaning. I um, and and you know I'm, I'm kind of with the internet and social media and so forth. There's always something that uh, people uh, people will post that is seemingly interesting or seemingly significant. I talked to the men yesterday in the men's prayer meeting about a story that's been circulating for a number of years. I think that maybe it began back in 2005 and. If you'll recall the story about the resurrection tomb, when Peter and John, when they entered the tomb, they saw all of the the linen clothes lying basically in a heap, but they saw the napkin 
that had been uh, wrapped around the face of Jesus, that it was set to the side. And of course, some people talk about it being folded, but the scripture says that uh, it, it doesn't use the word folded. And uh, there was a, a story that has uh, gotten so much traction and been circulated so many times that basically says that this was significant because it represented the master and the servant. Jesus being the master and John and Peter being the servant. And uh, just like when we sit at a table and uh, if you go to a restaurant and you have a cloth napkin, I know that there's certain protocol or certain etiquette, if you will, that uh, when you when you leave your seat, you either place the napkin um, on the table or you place it in your seat, meaning, and it all sign- signifies something. I, I don't have any class, so I don't remember what it signifies, but evidently it does. It was circulated that this meant that the master was saying, he folded it, basically saying that I'll be back, I'm returning, or uh, maybe maybe it meant that I'm finished, or I, I don't remember exactly what was circulated, but I was talking to the men because I had heard that on numerous occasions, and this past week as I was preparing this message, I did a little bit of research on that, and to... Um, to uh, my, I wouldn't say surprise because I've been in this, um, I've been in ministry a number of years and I've jumped on bandwagons before only to find out that there isn't any wheels on some of those bandwagons. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is absolutely no scriptural, nor is there any historical or cultural foundation for that little clever story. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I guarantee you if I did, I would see many hands raised that you've heard that story before of the signification of the folded napkin, so to speak. But the fact of the matter is, is it's, it's just not true. And so from, I said all that to say this by way of introduction is that we have so many things that are crystal clear in the Word of God that are significant that we don't have to search for little obscure things to find significance about the cross or the resurrection. Now, I believe personally that if it's not true, then it's not significant. I don't care if it makes me cry. I don't care if it makes me smile. I don't care if it makes me shout. I don't care how it affects me emotionally, if it's not true, then it's not significant. And so often, especially modern preachers today, are searching for something that produces an emotional response in the hearers, rather than just sticking to that which is so. Listen, the truth, by the help of the Holy Spirit, it will stir our emotions, because there's some things that are quite significant. And the first one that I want to bring to your attention uh, here this morning is the prayer of agony in the garden. If you would turn back just a few pages to uh, John chapter number 18. And in John chapter number 18, we find in verse number 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where it was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Now, we sang about it here this morning, and interestingly enough that uh, Brother Coppinger and I, we didn't even, uh, we didn't coordinate the message and the song, but both of the songs that we sang, or two of them that we sang here this morning, made reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Now, John's gospel doesn't give us a lot of details about this time in the garden. But Luke's gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel, gives us some additional details. I'll read to you from Luke 22 and verse number 41. It says, And he was withdrawn from them, speaking of the other disciples, about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, listen to what Jesus prayed here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, for you uh, young people here today, when Jesus talks about this cup, he's not talking about a cup that you drink out of. He's talking about the cup that is filled with suffering. Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen, I mean, within uh, not only hours, but really within minutes that he was getting ready to be arrested He was getting ready to be tried. He was getting ready to be beaten and scourged and mocked. And he was getting ready to be crucified. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, he knew what was getting ready to happen. And he was dreading it. I cannot imagine how he must have been dreading that moment. And it says in verse 43, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Listen, this is the Son of God. This isn't a robot. This is someone who was experiencing humanity and he was suffering so much that his heavenly Father literally sent an angel to minister to him, to strengthen him at that very moment. Being in an agony, verse 44, he prayed more earnestly. And it says his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Listen, brothers and sisters, I've had some stress in my life, stress that made my stomach sick, stress that would affect so many different things, give me a headache and cause fatigue. I've had stress that has caused depression. I've had stress that just took away my sleep, but I've never had stress like Jesus Christ. The the blood vessels... There was so much intense stress inside of his body that the blood vessels where the sweat glands were, were literally rupturing and he had blood coming out of his sweat pores as great drops. Cannot imagine the agony. You know, there's a lot of things that we go through that are tough. I remember when my father was killed down in Southern California. And I I will remember just the intensity of that that grief and that suffering as I stood over his body on life support. And I can remember it, I got so overwhelmed that I had to, I had to go into the restroom down the hall. And it wasn't to use the restroom. It was to go inside, lock the door behind me, stick my head in the corner of the room and just weep uncontrollably because of the stress. That was intense, but it's not even comparable. To what our Lord Jesus went through there in the hours before the cross of Calvary. Perhaps no event in the life of Christ demonstrates his humanity more than this prayer of agony in the garden. You know, here in the last several hundred years, there have been a bunch of new religions, so to speak, that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. 
The Mormons deny the deity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. And you can go even back further to the 4th century and you find that the Muslims uh, deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And there are many others and have been many others throughout the last couple millennium. In our zeal to defend our doctrinal position against these damnable heresies, and yes, they are damnable, perhaps we have overemphasized the deity of Christ to the neglect of His humanity. Listen, there, there is no emphasizing one over the other. One isn't gl- glory and the other shame. The fact that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh, it's a mystery. I can't understand it. But listen, they both need to be equally emphasized. Yes, He was God or is God manifest in the flesh. But yes, He was the Son of Man as, uh, as Luke's Gospel says on numerous occasions. Could it be possible... Could it be possible that this error has contributed to the lack of love that believers demonstrate toward Jesus Christ today? Think about it. He was human. What he went through. Now, if you're a believer here today, we know that what he went through, he went through for the sins of the whole world. He went through for me and he went through it for you. You know, they were, they were talking, and, and listen, man does some amazing things. You, you can read biographies about soldiers who did just tremendous things in battle. I mean, in the last 20 and 30 and 40 years, we've had some, uh, we've had some young men from our country that have went over to Afghanistan and Iraq, and they have done some amazing things. Things that are worth writing about. Things that are worth telling about. Uh, Just last week, uh, in the sports world, Tiger Woods, with his repaired, surgically repaired leg, he finished four rounds at the Masters. Scored horrible, but he finished limping. And everybody's talking about, wow, that was a great thing that he finished. And humanly speaking, it is. But I use that as a crude example that we get all worked up and excited and interested. We find significance in things that really are not and the things that really are. Oh yeah, I know that Jesus prayed in the garden. I believe that He was crucified for me. But it just doesn't really seem to affect my life that much. Don't you think it's sad that the news of the Garden of Gethsemane really has no more effect on your life than the news of Tiger Woods finishing four rounds at the Masters? Yeah, cool. Interesting. Wow. Something to talk about, but not really in the whole scheme of life, not really that significant. First Peter chapter number 1 And verse number 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Peter is talking about the Christian life. What we go through, manifold temptations. What does that mean, preacher? It means a lot of them. A lot in quantity, 
and a lot of different kinds of trials and troubles and temptations that we go through. The, the, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Listen, if you really believe that, let's say, somebody that you work with or a relative, that they suffered greatly for you, I guarantee you, you would probably find it difficult to sleep at night. You'd be so filled with gratitude You'd be filled with such a feeling of debt. It would have so much significance in your life. But listen, why do we not love Jesus Christ as we ought to? Because we have lost sight of what He's done for us. The agony in the garden. He said, Father, if it be possible, is there another way, Lord? I don't want to go through this. He wasn't a robot. He was a man, he was human, and he was dreading the, the, all that he was going through. Here in just a moment, we'll see what he was really dreading. It was more than just the nails and the thorns and the, the scourging. It was much more than that. But he did it willingly in submission to his heavenly Father. Why? Because he knew that there was no other way that you and I could be saved. Listen, if you're here this morning, or if you're listening, and if someone were to ask you the question, hey, are you saved? Are you on your way to heaven? And you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. Well, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven if you die? Well, yeah, I, I I, I think so. I think I'd go to heaven. Well, what do you base that on? Well, you know, I think that I'm... I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anyone. I'm good to my neighbor. And certainly my good works outweigh my bad works. And I I, I can only imagine that if you were standing before God and God was asking those questions and you were answering uh, that way. And by the way, what I just answered is the majority of the answers that you get here in America today. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but that's really not what I'm basing going to heaven. I'm still basing it on me. And I guarantee you that God the Father would look at His right hand where Jesus is sitting and He'd look at Jesus and Jesus would look at His hands and He'd look at God the Father and say, I guess I wasted my time there. Sounds to me like they got it all figured out on their own. Sounds to me like that they can handle it getting to heaven without me. And don't you find that preposterous Don't you find that arrogant to the umpteenth degree that we would think or could think that we can do anything that would satisfy the demands of a holy God and His holy law. The law that we have broken numerous times. And so there's significance in the prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the significance that we find in the treatment of Jesus. And I'm going to go quickly through some of these. And some of them we're going to read and some of them I'm just going to tell you about. The first one was the gambling for His garments. Those 
Those Roman soldiers literally made a game out of the clothing of Jesus. They, they wanted them for souvenirs from the crucifixion. They, they, they gambled for him. They parted his garments. Here, here's, here's some for you. Here's some for me. And of course, that was prophesied in Psalm 22 and verse number 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That was prophesied. And this is something that's significant because this was prophesied over a thousand years before, and still it came to fruition, just like the Word of God said. I read about how in John 19, in fact, look at John 19 with me in verse number 28. John 19 and verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. I'm sure you've heard of the old cliche, they added insult to injury. He's literally thirsting. I mean, the blood had been pouring out of his body. He hadn't had a drink of water for well over 24 hours. He'd been beaten and full of stress and all of the sweat coming out there at the garden. He was so dehydrated. In fact, the Scripture says that he was so dehydrated that his tongue would cleave to his jaws. I mean, you talk about the miracles of the cross of Calvary. When anything that Jesus said on the cross, it was a miracle of God that you could even hear Him. Because His tongue and His mouth was so dehydrated. What do they do? They give Him vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, verse number 21. It was prophesied exactly what would happen. And then the supernatural darkness. The earthquake. The torn veil. In Matthew 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now if you're not a Bible student, let me explain what time this is. The sixth hour in a Jewish day was noon. It started at 6 a.m. We follow the Roman pattern, but uh, the Bible... Uh, even in the creation, God said the evening and the morning were the first day. We start a day at midnight, but to the Jewish calendar, it starts at 6 p.m. Then you have the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you have the Jewish day. And so from noon, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, for three solid hours, the sun refused to shine. You say, well, that must have been an eclipse. I don't believe it for a moment. If it was an eclipse, no eclipse takes place for three hours. You say, well, maybe it was just some thick clouds. Listen, it says darkness. It doesn't say that it just got a little bit dark, like in a really cloudy day. Listen, you can have a cloudy day. Have you ever been inside, say, in the, the spring or the fall? We're kind of used to, to winter time, and it's real cloudy and overcast. And have you ever just kind of mentally felt like it, it, it feels like it's cold outside? 
It may not be cold outside, but because it's just kind of dark and dingy, you just feel like that it might be. That's not what we're talking about here. The Bible says that it was darkness. The lights weren't dimmed. The lights were out. Now, talk about significant events. I think it's significant. Why? Because Jesus Christ in the book of John, if you go to chapter number one, we find out, you know who Jesus was? The light of the world. Listen, the sun. Do you know that light was created in Genesis one before the sun was created? God doesn't need uh, the sun or a moon or stars for light. God is light and in him is no darkness. Listen, Jesus Christ was the light of the world. And Jesus himself said that men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. The fact that the sun would refuse to shine. Listen, you talk about the darkest hour of human history. It was right then and right there on Golgotha's hill as Jesus Christ, the light of the world, was getting ready to die for the sins of the human race. Matthew 27, verse number 51, And behold, The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Listen, rocks are just tearing apart, and the earth's shaking. And none of that caused... Listen, if you were standing inside the holy place of that temple, I I, I can't imagine what that must have been like, to be standing there in that holy place, and there's this great big curtain... Let's just pretend for a moment that this sanctuary is the temple. And let's say that between this this platform, that there's a huge curtain that goes all the way up to the ceiling. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly how thick that that curtain was, but I am told from Jewish history that it was thick enough that you could not tear it with literally multiple teams of mules trying to pull it apart. And yet, God the Holy Spirit reached down with His hands and from the top to the bottom tore it in two. Say, what's significant about that? That was more than just a miracle so that we could see that, hey, something amazing happened. That was significant because that veil was the only way to get to the holy place, the only way to get to God was through the veil. And the only one that could go inside of that veil was the Levitical high priest of the Old Testament. And you know what God was saying to you and I? After Jesus died on the cross, God says, I'm giving you direct access to me. You don't need an earthly priest. You don't need religion. You don't need all of those things. You, through the high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He was the everything for our redemption. And God was signifying that, hey, it's no longer access to God is not through religious rituals and animal sacrifices. It's not through the blood of bulls and goats or the ashes of an heifer. It is through the atonement, 
the vicarious death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John knew who he saw. John knew what he was talking about because our Savior literally became that sacrificial lamb. I read about in John 19, 31-34 that none of his bones were broken. That was prophesied in Psalm 34 and verse number 20. And that brings me to something I alluded to earlier. And that is the significant thing about Christ's suffering. And when He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. It was more than the scourge. It was more than the thorns. It was more than the mockery and the spitting. It was more than all of that suffering. Although I am not minimizing that suffering. But here is what I believe that Jesus was dreading the most. Right after He said, or excuse me, right before He said, it is finished. In Matthew 27, verse number 46, about the ninth hour, once again, 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse number 1. But what exactly was Jesus saying when He said, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake Him? Was it just that Jesus felt like He was forsaken? Listen, I've had times where I felt that God had forsaken me. I've had times where the devil told me, God doesn't care anymore. God doesn't love you. I've had times that I felt that way, but is that is this just something that Jesus was going through emotionally? Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is, at that moment in space and time on Calvary's cross, God literally did forsake His Son. And here's the reason why. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 21 says, For He... That's God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Just as Moses took a cursed animal and hung it on a pole and said, look and live, back during the plague, Jesus was literally a curse there on that tree, and Jesus literally became sin for us. Was it his sin? Word of God says he knew no sin. Listen, the only sin that Jesus ever experienced was yours and mine. Every single sin. You know, we don't, we don't ever feel guilty enough for our sins. We make light of them. We justify them. We, we judge ourselves based on our good intentions, not on our actions. You know, we, we, we tell the police officer, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that I was speeding. And you know how it works. Most of the time, the officer says, well, I don't care whether you knew or not, you were speeding. I got you. They're going to write you a ticket, right? Especially if it's a woman officer. 
It's the law. And even if they don't write you a ticket, you certainly had it coming, right? And we make light, and, and I'm not saying that a speeding ticket is comparable to the sins that we commit in our lives. And the sins that we commit are multiple. Lying and deceit. Lying and deceit is part of our culture today, even among those that are leaders. Sadly, lying and deceit is a part of the pulpit ministry in America today. Shame on us. Adultery. Fornication. You talk about a lustful and perverse culture that we live in today. You talk about the things that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for. Guess what? Our culture today is trying to normalize them and naturalize them. You talk about significance. I found this interesting. You know, if you if you watch any TV at all, you know that for the entire month of October, if there's any movie or any show that's being watched, it's all going to be Horror and Halloween for an entire month. I found that, uh, oh, in the last few weeks that uh, one of the channels, insignificant channels, showed a little movie about Moses. I saw the Ten Commandments on a couple other channels and uh, one about the Bible. But just a few here and there on insignificant channels. And yet... Our culture will celebrate for an entire month the devil's holiday, but when it comes to Easter and the resurrection, you know what they do? They just throw it a little bit of token because they know that the people, theoretically, the people who pay their cable bill is ought to at least be good people and decent people like Christians. I, I, I don't know. There's probably a lot I could preach on on that right there. But the fact of the matter is, is the world makes light of our sin. We think that, oh, it's no big deal. And yet, at this moment of space and time, Jesus bore it. Listen to what 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree. I mean, He bore our sins and our shame and our guilt. Everything, every vile thought, every act of anger and violence and deceit and lust, all of those were placed on the body of Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't know about you, but I find that pretty significant. And then my last point, number three, in John 20. And verse number one, I want to talk about, uh, just for the, the last few minutes here, the resurrection. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. She, she made an assumption. She didn't really know what she was talking about. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. 
So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Of course, we know that to be John, and came first to the sepulcher, and he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, and uh, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher, seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. We've already talked about that. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. The resurrection, Jesus Christ, was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, according to the prophecy. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, Jesus, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Psalm 16, in verse number 9, this is a prophecy. This is before, uh, this is the heart of Jesus prophesied by David the psalmist. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The body of Jesus Christ was laying in that borrowed, sealed tomb for three days and three nights, but His soul was in the heart of the earth. His soul was in hell, but His soul was not left in hell. He resurrected on the third, that third morning, resurrection morning. He came up out of that grave. Now, we know that the stone was rolled away, but that wasn't to let Him escape because... He could walk through, he could walk right through the stone. He could walk right, right through walls. His glorified, resurrected body was not limited by the same physics that our bodies are limited. He could literally walk through walls. He could travel at the speed of thought. It was amazing. In John 20, verse number 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. You know why Jesus said, Don't touch me? Remember I told you, we we read about the veil that was rent in twain, and that high priest, that high priest would have to take on the Day of Atonement the blood of that sacrifice, and literally come inside of the veil and present that blood there at the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And when He would come back, if the offering was accepted by the Father, He would come back out to the people and He would say, peace be unto you. And that's exactly what Jesus, our high priest, He said, don't touch me yet, Mary, because I have not yet ascended. You know, it's not long after that He says to Thomas, go ahead, touch me. Somewhere in there, Jesus ascended. He went all the way to the third heaven, not at the speed of light, but at the speed of thought, and He presented His own blood there behind the veil, and God accepted His sacrifice, and that's why He could come back and say, peace be unto you. Hey, thank God, we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about significant things. The meaning of this is significant to the high priestly duty 
of Jesus Christ. And there's so many more things that we could say about the resurrection and about the stone rolled away and all of those things. But in conclusion, I want to ask you a question. How important is the resurrection? How significant is it? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 16, Paul is dealing with a bunch of believers who really said there isn't, there isn't an afterlife, there isn't a resurrection, and Paul's just perplexed. How can you even believe that? And he said, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if, in, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Notice how significant it is. If Jesus did not resurrect, then we're toast. We're still in our sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Hey, you've got a loved one that knew the Lord. Your grandma, your grandpa, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. And you're looking forward to seeing them. Hey, if Jesus didn't resurrect, you're never going to see Him again. It's over. We're no different than the animal world. We live. We eat. We sleep. We do all of those things that come with life, and when it's all said and done, it's all said and done. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now I want to say this, I got right with the Lord in 1986, actually 1985, just toward the end of the year. I've been walking with the Lord ever since. I've been serving the Lord for 36 years. The time that I've served the Lord, the time that, I mean, God's blessed me with a wonderful Christian wife, two wonderful children. And uh, I, uh, I shudder to think of what my life would have been if I hadn't have gotten right when I did. And yet life's not been all peachy. We went through some tough things. I've made a lot of mistakes and I've had a lot of failures, a, lot of, a few victories along the way, and certainly a lot of blessings. There have been temptations and there have been trials and there have been testings and all of those things. I've, I've suffered grief and loss and I've known what it's like to, to weep and I've known what it's like to hurt. But I've got to say publicly, for all to hear, I wouldn't change it for the world. The Christian life, the life that God has given me since I got right with the Lord, it's been worth it. And yet, we still have a promise that the best is yet to come. Listen, it, it, even if you don't believe in the afterlife, even if you're not excited about heaven, you ought to you ought to surrender. You ought to give your life and heart to Jesus Christ just for the benefits in the here and now. It's a good way to live. It's a clean way to live. It's a healthy way to live. It's a clear conscience and it'll protect you from yourself. But still, when it's all said and done, uh, thank God, like Paul said in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Life wouldn't make any sense if there wasn't an eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 32, Paul said, 
If I, after the manner of men, have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? You know, Paul was literally thrown into the gladiator ring and had to fight with beasts because he was a Christian, because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul did? He fought with them. Evidently, he survived. But he said, if I did all of that and I survived, what? there's no advantage. He said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, the average believer in Jesus Christ, oh, they believe in Jesus, but the way that they live is as if they're never going to actually stand before Jesus. You know, you can say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, but do you really live like you believe it? Do you really, do you really care? Are the things that Jesus did for you, are they really that significant? Or are you just living your life that, hey, we'll eat, drink, be merry, do our thing because tomorrow we're going to die. You are going to die one day. You don't know when that hour is. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years from now. But I will say this, regardless of how many years you live on this earth, we're all going to pass into eternity and we're all going to stand before God. The resurrection is significant, no doubt about it. All of these things and and many, many more, we could say what we are celebrating today here on Easter Sunday, all of these things are significant. The prayer in the garden. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the empty tomb that signified that death could not keep the sinless Son of God. All of these are significant. But I end with this question. How significant is it to you? I hope and pray by the grace of God that you'll consider these truths that have been presented today and question yourself. Search your heart. Does Jesus really mean that much to me? What He went through in suffering for me, do I really live my life as if it matters? Or do I just eat and drink and figure I'll live my life my way? I hope that you'll consider the significant events that surround the cross. And I hope and pray that they'll become significant to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank You for the cross of Calvary and thank You for the resurrection. I pray, Father, that You will help this congregation here today, that You'd help each and every one of us, that we would find significance in You. Lord, so so often we live our life for things that will have no eternal value. Pleasures, routine, success, and even family. And yet, Lord, all these things are so temporary. But Lord, You died on the cross for us. You paid the penalty for our sins so that we could live forever with You. I pray, Father, that we'd not just be looking for the benefit of our salvation, but Lord, that we would realize that salvation is about a person and a relationship with You. Help us, Lord, to love you. And thank you, Lord, for surrendering to the cross of Calvary. Lord, we'd be lost without it. 
So thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you did for us. May we be mindful. May our life be significant because of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed as the pianist plays softly? If you've never been saved, we'd like to give you an opportunity to get born again here today. If you're not sure 100% that you know Christ as your Savior, we'd like to invite you to come. Come on down here and we'll get a man or a woman to open up the Bible and lead you to Christ. It would be our joy and it'd be our privilege. Perhaps maybe you say, I'm just a little bit awkward. I I don't know that I want to come forward. Well, why don't you just bow and trust Christ right where you're at? Why don't you just confess to him that you know you're a sinner and that you know that he died for your sins? And why don't you just ask him to be your savior? Call upon him to save you. You'll do that. And if you'll mean it from your heart and put your faith and trust in him, He'll do something for you that is amazing and certainly is significant. He'll save you because He promised that He would. He'll change your life. He'll make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, but you'd honestly say that you find significance in things that are of really no value and you don't find significance in what Jesus did for you and who He is. i just like to encourage you, would you consider repenting of that, confessing it, saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've not been living my life with you as the most important, significant thing. Would you help me, Lord? Help me to quit living selfishly and help me to quit living foolishly and help me to start living wisely. Value the things that are eternal. How can we reject Him and deny Him when He's done so much for us? Amazing, folks. let's all stand to our feet and we'll be dismissed. I certainly hope that each and every one of you have a happy Easter. Don't forget about the photo booth there in the chapel. Take a nice family picture while everybody's dressed up and I hope you enjoy your family. Remember no service here this evening. If you know someone that wasn't here this morning, uh, maybe reach out to them and just remind them that we're not having a service here this evening. And so appreciate you all being here. It's good to see each and every one of you. When asked for the W.B. Sharp to close us in prayer, when he's finished praying, then you are dismissed. God bless you.